Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Service to the grace of God in AA since the 10th of December 1967. For that, I'm very grateful. It is nice being here. Richard, thank you for what you and Barbara have done this weekend. And Lee, it's, uh, I think these are special. You know, we have Daryl to thank, I think, for the, a little bit for the format. He probably didn't invent it, but he perfected it and uh, made it available to a much wider uh, audience. And I think there's something you would get differently. Uh, more strongly, a little bit more personally, I think, out of each other than we do when we just tell our stories. And that is good. Nice to see my friend Sandy here. Appreciate that wonderful effort, even though you're supposed to be in your room. But I, I'm talking on eight and nine. I, I just have one request of my wife. I, if I would prefer you not to stand up in the middle of my talk and yell bullshit, it would, it would, <laughs> it, uh, it will, it will throw off. <laughs> it will affect how people see me. And uh, <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm going to start out with the instructional part of steps eight and nine, and then I'm going to talk about my experience. Uh, step eight says that we uh, may direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others, and nine says that we made direct amends wherever possible. No, I'm sorry. Step eight said we were entirely ready to have. (laughs) Step eight said we made a list of the people we had hired and became willing to make amends with them all. Step nine said we made direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. That is the instructional part of my presentation. (laughs) And I'm not kidding about that. It is the instructional part of the presentation. It is, uh, you know, uh, I spoke earlier and said that I think we tend to complicate these things. Uh, We have this kind of funny conversation going on in Alcoholics Anonymous today about what, what they did in Bill and Bob's day and what we do today. And some people talk about that as a magic time. And it is extraordinary when you listen to some of those old-timers talk about how Bob visited them and they went through the steps, you know, or when Bill talks about going through many of the steps in the hospital. Uh, And it is, if that's so, okay, it's pretty hard to talk about an hour and a half on a step. Uh, And yet, you know, We've been around here a long time. But I think the, you know, I want us to notice that I think in the old days, I think the steps were dealt with more simply, uh, more directly, less psychologically. And uh, and they still had this powerful impact. Uh, they still got the job done. And sometimes we beat it to death. With, we do, we don't, we are neurotics. We are never, I remember I'm listening to young 
I'm down in Mexico, and I go on the six-mile walk most days, and I'm listening to Carl Jung talk about, you know, modern man in search of his soul, and he's talking about how Freud and Adler are not particularly into the, you know, the kind of spiritual walk. And then he referred to so-and-so as being a neurotic, and he said, neurotics are never happy. And I thought, I just kind of stopped in the middle of my never? I mean, <laughs> that, this is not good news. And... <laughs> Because I think there's some evidence that I have that uh, sort of thing, and I think sometimes we have it. We can do things endlessly. A friend of mine once said, "Anything worth doing, uh, anything worth doing, is worth doing." Good God, uh, anything <laughs> poorly. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly, and if you wait to do it perfectly, you've got a long wait. And, it, and you will never have always have the benefit of completing it. I came, I started preparing to do step six and seven earlier before I came, found out I was doing eight and nine on the, the day before I came. But it was a pleasure. It's been a pleasure being here and a pleasure listening to everybody but Sheldon. Uh, <laughs> it is. So I came here at 23 years of age. I got had my last drink a week after my 24th birthday. And uh, it was an extraordinary thing to me to go to start going to meetings. When I came into AA, I met my sponsor, who I had for 43 years, and I thought we would be talking a lot about how not to drink. And I was shocked that there was almost no conversation about how not to drink. The book and the conversation assumes we have stopped drinking. It is, I mean... It, you know, which is kind of interesting. I mean, it is that simple. I mean, if that is, you know, uh, and I used to go to the meetings early and I would leave, the meetings were from 8 to 9 and I would leave about 11. And I would sit down next to my sponsor and I would listen to my sponsor who was the 12-step champion of the Uptown group and all his sponsees would come in and they'd be talking to him. And almost none of that conversation was about how not to drink. Almost all of that conversation had to do with amends or a fight or a problem at work, money. It was about living. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to get in touch with this sort of thing. And it became very clear to me after a while that what they were talking about was how to live. And, uh, and I'm watching these men. I'm 23 years old. I'm watching these 45 and 50 and 55 and 60-year-old guys with a seriousness, start to go through their life looking at what was in their way. What was in their way of finding God? Uh, and uh, and everybody in their own way has been having that conversation so far this weekend. What's in, in your way about the about the relationship with God? And later, if I get a chance to get into it a little bit, uh, the mind keeps talking about becoming. And where you're going to end up, in my experience, is uh, where you started. It is, I don't know who that wonderful poet was that talked about the journey of life, and when you're done with the journey, you end up where you started. Elliot. And uh, and that is what I think the, pro, you know, the journey in the program is. Where you end up, I mean, what, we're, what Chuck's talks about is uncovering, discovering, and discarding. We're ending up discovering the God that has always been there. We are not changed. We are revealed. And that is why, ultimately, there is nothing to do. And that's why I think when Chuck said what you're looking for, you're looking with. Uh, so it's an extraordinary thing. 
When I started to make my amends list, I'm a 24-year-old kid. 24-year-old kid, hadn't lived a lot of life. I was not married, uh, but I had screwed up mo- almost every responsibility that I had. And my list was, the largest part of the list was monetary. The list that, uh, as we talked amongst ourselves, or when I came in in AA 1967, the lists were not very psychological. They were mostly money, family, and work. And they were relative, they were not 150 names, uh, listening to the men that did it and looking at my list, you know, they could have been 15 names, they could have been 20 names, but they were not as broad. Today, the religion of the world is psychology. And psychology has leaked in and affected every aspect of everything we do. Uh, and as, as a result of that, it is, and we keep trying to use that tool to resolve spiritual problems. And that tool is not deep enough. What Anthony DeMello, one of the great people in my life that talked about it, was is kind of, he says, psychology will transfer the bomb from your lap to under the seat, but, but it is not deep enough to resolve the fundamental problem that you're dealing with. <laughs> and uh, so I went through the list. The biggest part, biggest and toughest part of the list for a young guy was the money part. When I came in here, I owed between six and seven thousand dollars. A couple of grand of that was a wedding ring that I got for Linda. I had a two or three or four thousand dollars in bills, and I owed my dad a couple of grand. And uh, I'm kind of a spoiled kid. I was from an upper middle class family, been born on third base, been congratulating myself for hitting a triple. And uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> so I did a, a consolidation loan with my father, and paid off all my debts at once. We will get back. We will revisit this fact later. Uh, but I did, I, I, I went, when I paid off the debts, I went to the people. I didn't just send a check. I went to the people who I've owed money for for a long time, and I made amends to them. Uh, and that was embarrassing, and it was awkward, and it was important to me. And money has played an awkward role in my life. It has been too important in my life. And that, with greed and fear and materialism and all I've ever wanted was more. <laughs> what would you like? I'd like more. <laughs> Two dollars, all you can eat. I'd like four dollars worth, please. You don't need four dollars. I just, just in case. I, I <laughs> it is, you know, enough is a concept. More is, you know, seems like a real, you know, sort of thing for me. Uh, today, and I had to pay that money back to my dad over about a year and a half period of time. And the, one of the blessings that Linda and I, certainly I went to work for my dad, uh, one of the biggest mistakes he ever made. I worked for my dad as long as we both could stand it. I was one of the worst employees anybody ever had. And my dad bought a small shopping center. I mean, when I mean small, it was a gas station, a grocery store, and a beer joint, and a laundromat. And Linda and I, in our first year of marriage, moved up to Brainerd, Minnesota, which is 150 miles north of the Twin Cities, and we moved into the back of this <coughs> grocery store. Four days after I moved into that grocery store, they delivered a side of beef. Now, I knew about as much about a side of beef. I mean, it, the whole experience, we closed the beer joint, but, I, but you know, we were up in the morning, people were coming into our apartment, Linda became pregnant, or you were already pregnant when we came up and our son Bill was born up there. But because we couldn't spend any money, I'm working 12 hours a day, and we're not, you know, all I do is go to AA and work. Uh, we paid off that money in the first year 
of our marriage. So I paid off my, paid off, we paid off my debts <laughs> uh, in the first year of our marriage. I had uh, two or three kind of embarrassing things about stealing. I would, uh, almost all my life, I stole money from my dad. I'd wait till he went into the shower. And, uh, I mean, this started when I was, I was a candy addict when I was a young kid. So I, I mean, not sort of. I mean, I was, you know, and, uh, so that was an issue. By the time I showed up, you know, I don't know what I thought I owed, but I went to my dad and I told him, which he knew that I had been doing, and I ended up paying my dad a thousand dollars for the, I just kind of calculated what I thought that might be over a period of time. I did that with my aunt. And then I worked at a liquor store when I was, uh, uh, kind of in the last year of my drinking, and I stole liquor stores systematically. I stole booze out of the liquor store. And they could never figure, I was a really poor employee. But I was always willing to stock. And <laughs> so I would stock the shelves and we would put cardboard boxes, empty cardboard boxes on the conveyor belt and throw them out in the alley. And about every fifth box had a fifth in it. <laughs> and then I'd come around at night and I'd collect the, the money that I did. And I had to go in that store and talk to that man about the money that I stole. And I put that off for quite some time, but that was probably seven or eight hundred dollars in that process. I went to the three employers that I had had early on in that process and made amends and offered to pay back part of the salary that I, that they had paid me and I had not done the work. They did not want that. They did, they said they did not need that. And I went to everybody that I could figure out who I had harmed. Uh, I went to the families that, you know, my college roommate who put up with an enormous amount, he's an Alan on today. Uh, put up with an enormous amount of my nonsense. But I made a list of everybody that I thought I had harmed in my life, and I went over with my sponsor, and I went out, and I made those amends. And the relief of that was extraordinary. I, I think the wisdom of the program uh, about amends, you know, if I borrowed a couple of grand from uh, Sheldon, and I'm in his group, and uh, I say, look, I, I, I'm kind of tight right now. I need a couple of grand. If you let, I've got an income tax return coming in, and as soon as this comes in, I'll pay you back. Sheldon gives me the couple of grand. I don't have an income tax return coming in. I just need a couple of grand. I spend that money, and all of a sudden, I realize I can't pay Sheldon back, so I've got to kill Sheldon. <laughs> uh, you know, he doesn't need the money. He makes a hell of a lot of money. I mean, he's kind of a jerk. I don't, you know. So I've got to, I've got to reduce Sheldon so that I can be around Sheldon and not feel impacted by, you know. Then I have to stop going to the group because I don't want to be reminded about it. And for a couple of years, I don't pay Sheldon back. And every time on the carousel of my mind, Sheldon shows up, my headlights dim. And I don't have one of those. You know, I've got six of those. And uh, that's why you know, people wonder why alcoholics, you know, we seem seemingly have average IQs, but we, you know, sometimes don't use them very well. You know, I'm surprised we can get up in the morning and get dressed with some of the unfinished business that we have in our lives. That unfinished business ends up like being small, dark, black holes. and They suck the energy. And that's why I think you see when people start the amend process, you start seeing the, the booster rocket, you know, come out on the thing. When I came in... Early on in Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't know that there's ever a time that we see a more stupendous amount of work being done than the first two or three years in AA. 
Uh, it's just extraordinary. But in my opinion, much of the work that we see done is kind of dealing with the manure crop that we have been sowing for the previous five to ten years before we come in. We have been out planting manure seeds, uh, and the crop has arrived. And so most of the stuff that we're dealing with in our early sobriety are the consequences of our drinking. And many of us do not really get, and I think today we get more insight because I think today we do the steps in a more detailed and sometimes deeper way. But uh, my early experience was that we didn't get into the causes and conditions early on in our sobriety. Okay, And my first uh, fourth and fifth step didn't get into the causes and conditions. It was kind of enumerating the worst things that I had done. And I tried to clean that up and I, you know, I had a lot of consequences of my drinking. I had bills. I had amends and I went and I made those amends. I met with my parents. I met with my brothers and sisters. I, I went back to the teachers that I had. I went back to employers that I had and I paid back the money. I made, you know, for whatever, for whatever I could see. But those were consequences. And over the next six or seven years, and it's kind of hard, some of this I'm a little ashamed of, but that's just the way it is, what my real defects of character were revealed to me over the next six or seven or eight years in my sobriety. They were not revealed to me in the fourth and fifth step that I did when I walked in the front door. It is the living of life that reveals both our character and our defects of character. And... uh and then when I started to get a sense of that, I had a whole different sense of who I had harmed and how I had harmed them and what other amends that I that I needed to make in that process. I did not see my negative impact on my children. I did not see my negative impact on my family anywhere near to the extent I was did not see what a horrible worker I was. I did not see how my gambling affected my life, you know, about how I was always looking for someone who was a sucker. You know, I was a backgammon player, and I just kept looking for people who didn't do it as well as I did and hope I could get them alone for a couple of days. And uh, But that was, you know, every area of my life was that I would, was about me, about serving me. And I would tell you whatever I had to tell you in that process. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware. I was like a chameleon. And I was just kind of inviting you in to my life. I found that that's what I did early on with women, not... Uh, in AA because I was to be newly married when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, but throughout my dating life, you know, I was a charlatan and much, you know, not all of it, but a significant amount of my life. And you start taking a look at relationships in a very different way and you start to see that you're, you start to see what Mari was talking about. You start to see that there's serious character issues going on. And there's a hell of a lot of people that wouldn't want to deal with you again if they had the choice of not dealing with you. And I believe that we come in, one of the things that stops us from kind of taking responsibility for our behavior, which is what I think steps eight and nine, you know, are significantly about. And one is, is that we come in with a paradigm, with a way we see the world and it's kind of a survival mode. Most of us are not, you know, if it takes 20 grand for me to live during the year, you know, that's exactly what I make, you know, or a little less, okay? And if I accidentally make 10 grand in the first two or three months, I slow my earning down, <laughs> you know, so that by the end of the year, I match, you know, the income and expense kind of match. So I, ha- I, I, I have a sense of what I have to do to get by. 
I don't excel. I'm not looking at my gifts. I, you know, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm overwhelmed. I'm in the survival. When you're in the survival, you can't love. You can't take care of anybody else. I mean, you're in four-foot waves hanging onto an oar in the water, and you do not have just your whole mentality. It is the mentality of a victim uh, to some extent, and you don't feel, you feel like, you know, we've been harmed, and happiness is knowing who to blame. So we come in here, we are not particularly responsible, and most of us have been lying, you know, for a heck of a long period of time, and it's very difficult for us to kind of get in touch. Anger for many of us is a very serious issue, as Mari was talking about. And angry people are blamers, which I did not know. And the angrier you are, the more blame and responsibility you give other people. So you're walking through your life, you know, blaming other people for things that you should be responsible for. And one of the magical parts of uh, steps eight and nine Eight and nine are the completion, you know, when uh, Polly talked about in step three, the decision that we make and what's the decision. A lot of you know, people talk about that in different ways. But one of the most significant ways they talk about it is that we've made a decision to complete the work from four to nine. And uh, that is, and now we're talking about in step eight and nine, we're, we're completing that process. Well, it's pretty extraordinary when you talk about when Mari talked about transformation. How do you go from when you start to make a list in your four-step of the people that you think have harmed you or the people that you resent, and in almost all our cases, our nine-step, the people that we're going to to make amends are the people that are on that list. Now, if you would have told anybody when they started making that list, okay, write down the people that you hate the most or you feel have harmed you the most, and in a month we're going to go to them and we're going to make amends. <laughs> okay. Uh, you almost couldn't believe that that would be the process that you would go through. Okay. So when we talk about the steps being life-changing, being transformational, having a spiritual awakening, I mean, this process that is hard to, you know, kind of understand all at once we're surrendered, and when are we doing amends? You know, the book talks about if you're going to go to your employer, you might want to wait a week. <laughs> you know, I mean, those people were doing amends immediately. And with family, you want to do it immediately. With other people, you may want to postpone a little bit, but don't postpone too much. That isn't going to work. Okay. The reason that they were able to do that is their egos were suppressed. They were not full of themselves. You know, so when you come in and you're surrendered, and someone gets a hold of you and says, you know, we got a way to deal with your alcoholism, and they start through the steps, and you start going through, you know, step four and five to find out what's, you know, what your defects of character are, and and to, and to start the, the cleaning house process, and then you get into find out what, you know, not our part, but you know, find out what, you know, what what your character defects are in that process. We're, the reason we're able to take such a clear look at that is that we are surrendered. If you wait too long in the process, the mind comes back and the ego comes back, and you know what? The the the, the amends and the looking at character defects is too embarrassing and it's too difficult, and we stop doing it. And that's where why I think early in that process it's really important to have good strong sponsorship, so that we continue to go through that early enough so that we don't 
uh, let ourselves off the hook and when that we don't start to minimize and that we don't start to explain away, you know, the issues that we have. Uh, I don't think we have any sense. In Minnesota, we have an enormous amount of treatment centers. We, we don't have anywhere near the amount we used to have, but we, you know, treatment had a big impact on AA, both of, in our growth and it had an impact in, in the way people came in. Uh, we were probably too oriented to the fourth and fifth step. And, but, you know, most people would talk about what is, what are the most seminal steps in the program? Four and five would always end up being kind of one of the rites of passage in Alcoholics Anonymous. If someone asked me today, what are the seminal steps, the, some of the most important stuff? I'd say step eight and nine. And eight and nine are probably the most underserved steps in our fellowship. And one of the reasons they're underserved is people are afraid to do them. I mean, they aren't, you know, paying back money is not fun to do. And a lot of the people we're getting, I mean, part of the benefit of alcoholism really being understood that it's a disease today is we're getting to people earlier. We're getting to people younger. And, you know, and then a lot of the people that I see coming in, they owe their families a hell of a lot of money. They owe, you know, they've got the same sorts of problems with the IRS and the police and everything else that's going on. But fundamentally, they take a look at it, and they don't think they can make amends because they don't have the money. And they don't get that the universe is integrated and connected. And that if you really do owe, you know, two or three years' salary, uh, that once you start that process, once you really, you know, start, even if you owe a 1000 bucks and you go to someone, say, I'm going to give you 10 bucks a week, that all of a sudden you set a karma in action that is literally going to turn the ship. And it is going to, and, and, and the main reason it turns the ship is because it's, you are in the process of restoring your integrity. The biggest pain when you listen to all the presenters as we went through, as we're going through this weekend today, I think the biggest pain we have when you talk about the lack of consciousness, the lack of connection, the lack of knowing who we are, the lack of meaning, okay, we didn't have any meaning. We were surviving. And when we started, you know, first of all, you have to have an internal dialogue that's just literally killing you. You have to have an internal dialogue that wants you to drink a pint to a fifth a day or take a lot of other toxic medication. And, it, it, and alcohol and drugs were our solution to that dilemma. So you come into Alcoholics Anonymous and you no longer have that solution to the dilemma and you start to implement you know, our recovery, which is the solution to that dilemma. Uh, it is, you know, uh, the, um, and most of us are, you know, we come in because our pants are in fire and we don't know what to do. And, uh, but little by little, as we sit in the meetings, we start to get a sense of what life is about that we have lost in our alcoholism and our, you know, drug taking. And we start to identify ourselves with the behavior that we have, you know. So the patterns of behavior of stealing and lying and some of the sexual behavior and, you know, blowing through school and blowing through jobs and all the sorts of things, that bushel basket full of crap that we bring in the front door, we start to see our, we become that. If someone says, you know, what's wrong, our identity, we have become our disease. We've lost ourselves in the process of the disease. 
the pain of our behavior, the fact that we do not know how to live life on life's terms, so we adapt the very best we know how to do, and we don't know how to do it very well. We come in, a lot of us were missing parts when we came in, and when you talk about get a different tool chest, you know, I mean, my tool chest was entirely full of hammers. When your tool chest is entirely full of hammers, everything looks like a nail. There are no screwdrivers, there are no saws, there are no pliers, you know, and everybody's doing, is doing the best they know how to do in that process. And, uh, but it's a mystery. I mean, most of us did, you know, you listen to most of us talk, we're not afraid to die. <laughs> we're afraid to live. I mean, we are constantly kind of at limited experiences. We're at the edge of our lives, not knowing what to do, knowing that we have to make the decision and take the next action. And in the wisdom of the program, the disease beat us to death. The gift that we got for the disease was the surrender. The surrender reduced our ego. Okay, When our ego was reduced, we opened up and we were teachable. We took step one, two, and three, as Polly talked about today, and then we got into the house cleaning, you know, find God, clean house, help others. So one, two, and three, we found God. In four and five, we started the process of finding out what we wanted to clean out. In six and seven, we became willing, you know. Six and seven were kind of invisible to me. I thought, oh, sure, you know, my will, you know, Entirely ready to have God remove the defects of character? You bet I am. You know, humbly ask him, okay, please remove my defects of character. And I never really found out about how afraid I was of change and how I really didn't have any idea of what some of my defects of character were. When I started into my sobriety, when I got into the way my character really impacted in my life and the people that I hurt in my life, were my children and my wife on an ongoing basis. I was abusive to my kids, as Polly talked about. I was a money spender, a big shot, spent more money than I made, and I was a gambler and I was a poor worker. I carried those things on for seven years in my marriage. Can you imagine the the damage that you do over that period of time? I don't think I ever, you know, Linda's working, two kids working as a nurse, I don't think when Sheldon talked about how your mother felt, you know, I mean, I didn't think very much about how Linda felt or what she was going through during that process. I was struggling. I mean, I just, I was at the edge of what I was able to do and it wasn't much and it wasn't pretty. And as I started to wake up, you know, which was at about six years of sobriety, I started to really be able to, you know, I didn't, at my end of my first year of sobriety, I did not have a very good look at my defects of character. And I didn't really have a much of a sense of my impact on other people. And uh, when I got to my sixth year, I was in deep trouble. And that's when I had, you know, seven and eight, when I had that spir- second spiritual experience. And my third time through the steps. And when I had that surrender experience, which is no longer just with my alcoholism, was kind of a surrender experience with my life, uh, I, went, I had to go back and make a series of amends that were had more to do with my causes and conditions and had more to do with my character and lack of character than the first set of uh, amends that I made. Uh, the anger and rage that I had with my children was about three generations old in our family, and I was pleased that I was one of the guys that could help change the pattern of alcoholism, which is like six generations old in my family. 
But I, I started to go to a psychologist, and I started to work with how to be a better parent. And I started to work with how to work with my anger and some of the things that I was doing. I spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours trying to learn how to be a better parent, and that was about a four- to five-year process before I could effectively, you know, probably the whole process was a lot longer than that, but that was an important segment of the process. I stopped, so one, two, money-wise. I turned the money over to my wife. I gave her my salary. Uh, she was a great money manager, and I was a great money spender. And all of a sudden, the guy who didn't know how to work, you know, started to work, and I started to make significant money, and she had us out of money trouble, you know, uh, with the two of our salaries, and my salary started to significantly grow at that time, but we were out of money trouble. It took us, you know, a couple of years to kind of dig our way out of that hole, and I started with that. I was always so interested. I'm overly active in Alcoholics Anonymous and not active enough in our own family. So one of the amends I made, I started dating my wife every Friday night. I dated her every Friday night for, I don't know what, 35 years? And it was a real live, don't stand up and say bullshit. Uh, And it was a real live dangerous date. It was, uh, it was our romantic night. It was, you know, so we got dressed up. We went to, we didn't just go to a movie. We got dressed up and we went out to dinner. And it was the very best thing that we ever did. I mean, it was just, she knew once a week that she had my undivided attention. And it was, it was, you know, very cool. What we found ourselves early on in our marriage was we'd go out and we'd be talking about kids and bills. It's not how we fell in love. And, uh, we had to go, I had to go back and learn how to be romantic and learn and get connected with, you know, what we loved in each other and, and to learn how to, you know, we'd go take weekends and go shack up in Chicago or New York or wherever the, wherever we were in those are and were great times. When I had that second surrender, which had to do with, as I say, more of the core issues, my ego was reduced. I was as scared. I never realized what the, the role that fear played in my life. I was always a kid who looked like I knew what the hell I was doing. I overdressed. I was always a guy in the kind of, you know, thousand dollar suit and no underwear. It was, uh, <laughs> uh, and here I am. It took me seven years to man up. And in seven years, I'm ready to make amends and to make the changes in my life and turn myself in. I'm willing to do it sexually, I'm willing to do it financially, I'm willing to do it work-wise, I'm willing to do it as a father, and I'm willing to do it as a husband. I'm trying to do it as a man. And uh, you know what? I don't know what to do. Now, I, I know kind of independ- individually kind of what to do. So for the first two years after that change, I would, I would go to morning mass. And... Uh, after Mass, I'd go to this little side place, and I'd sit down, and I'd say, you know, now I, I mean, I'm supposed to learn how to work. And I've got, you know, ten, I've got eight years of, of not working very well. And I'm all of, you know, I've got to go out and make a living. I've got to be a parent and go do that. And my prayer was, I don't know what to do. Give me your mind. And little by little, I believe that God gave me his mind and got my mind out of the way enough 
So then I started to see what to do. And when I could start to see what to do, I could ask my sponsor for help and I could ask my wife for help. When I could kind of see what to do, I could give you the checkbook, you know, and I could take an, I could take an allowance. When I started to see what to do, I could go to Warren and say, look, I've got this trouble at work. And I'd make a promise to him about that. I'd go to work tomorrow morning. I'd go to work at 8 o'clock, and I'd stay at work. I used to go out for those two- or three-hour AA lunches, because anywhere, anytime the hand of AA reaches out. Uh, and I'd make an agreement. And then I'd make an agreement about, you know, trying to go make calls. These are the most powerful, you know. In AA, we start to take, Clancy talks about starting to take actions that you don't believe in and that you do not want to do, and they still work. And it is, those processes are the process of God. The fact that, you know, and when we talk about in the program that these, that we have a transformation, that we have a spiritual awakening, I mean, it is extraordinary that, that people will sit in a room and have conversations about cleaning up their lives to the way we have. Now, we're, we've lived life long enough to know that we are not the only people that make those kinds of mistakes. What other room would you go to to have that conversation in? Okay. I, I, I think of the culture and the tradition and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous forces and pushes us into taking profoundly, uh, profound actions, profound spiritual actions that we don't want to do that transform our lives in a way we could not predict. And in a, in a, almost in a way that we don't see when it first happens, because it's kind of you know, it's not of the mind. Our mind is not. Other people see it, you know. I mean, you're in a, you're in the group, and the you know you, you see the person, the new person come in, and they're just reluctant, and they don't want to be there. They're kind of pissy about everything that's going on in the group, and all of a sudden, in two or three weeks, something happens, and that person has a smile on their face. They're seeking people out. They're having conversations after the meeting, and the old-timers can take a look at them, and they know they're in the game. And what happens is their pilot-like got lit. When the book talks about, when you get into step four, what Sheldon was talking about, it said that, you know, first we get well spiritually. I never agreed with that. I always thought we got well first physically and then emotionally and then spiritually because spiritual seemed to be the most sophisticated one in that process. I don't believe that anymore. I believe what happens is you get your pilot light lit. Something happens to you in the collapse in your surrender, and all of a sudden you're in the game. You know, I mean, what you did with Bob, you know, very cool stuff. And you don't even, it's not like it's a big conscious decision. All of a sudden you find yourself having conversations you've never had in your life, taking actions that you never wanted to take or never thought you'd take. But if you don't clean up, if we don't take steps eight and nine, if we don't complete the house cleaning process, I believe we've cheated ourselves at a level. There's such a difference between apologizing, which almost all of us have done with a disgusting regularity in our lives. Uh, I found myself at seven years of sobriety and think of, you know, so much of the book is written with the intention that all of the stuff that we talk about and the problems we bring in when you're new, okay, the majority of the significant amends that I had to make were when I was seven years sober. The, new, the amends that I made when I came in were relatively easy amends for me compared to the amends that I had to make when I was seven years sober with my wife, with my children, and with my parents. Uh, it was uh, 
a very scary thing because I had run my, you know, there was a lot about living life that I did not know how to do. And all of a sudden I was going to turn myself in and take it on. I was going to man up and start to be, you know, like my dad. I was going to start to have integrity. I was going to start to stop hiding. You know, I was going to tear down the wall that I had built around me so that you couldn't see. I mean, I was the young, active guy. I was the I had all the merit badges, you know, but I was rotting from the inside. And it, uh, I got to the point where I was either going to put a gun in my mouth or I was going to change. And I was as afraid of that as anything that I had ever done. And uh, but that process of completing the house cleaning process is the restorative. It is, I mean, you know, when just before we start step 10, when it said we've now entered into the realm of the spirit, you know, I mean, it is, we have gone from having absolutely no insight when we start the process of step four, when we start making a list of people that we, you know, thought harmed us, and most of us felt like victims, and we've gone all the way to the point where we've made a list of the people that, you know, we have harmed, and we've gone to make amends of them all. And the wisdom of being able to clean house and not deal with the unfinished business that we have in our lives uh, restores our integrity and restores our energy. It is uh, There's a strength of person that shows up in that process, and you can tell it. I would bet if you went around to the people who were kind of the serial slippers in AA, and if you asked them, I think... You'd find three, two or three times the amount of people in that group that have taken step four and five that have completed steps eight and nine. Because they just get to the steps eight and nine and they just either aren't ready or don't feel like they can take those on. And that is why I think they're important to take on as early as you can start that process because if you, the earlier we start that process, the more surrendered we are. The longer we wait, the more rationalization that we are when we go through. And I really think that this is the, when Bill talks about six and seven separating the men from the boys, in my opinion, it's equally true of eight and nine. It is, there is nothing I don't think more attractive uh, about the person. And two or three things uh, as I get, you know, towards the end of what I want to say about eight and nine. one is, is listen when you go to eight and nine. We are so self-centered that a lot of times when we go to want to make amends to someone, it's about us, not about the person that we're making amends to. And it, it is, we want to go and tell people how badly we feel about what we did. And that is not what the purpose of the making amends are. We would, you know, it would be better if we would, we could start and say that, but we would also listen to what we, how what we did affected the other person. So that the conversation and the process is about the other person, not about us. And we are, you know, alcoholics are people who regularly, it's all about us. It's all there ever is in that process. So listening, I think, is very important. The other thing is, is that even though Bill alludes to apologizing, uh, one of the things I've been reading recently about the step is that we should ask for forgiveness rather than apologize. And in the process of asking for forgiveness, what you do is you empower the person you harmed. Okay? If you simply go and apologize, it's kind of unsaid that we're kind of expecting the person to forgive us in the process because we feel badly about what we did. (laughs) Again, 
It's about us. Without even kind of intentionally being about us, without even kind of, you know, thinking that through. But when you go to someone and you say, will you please forgive me? After you've listened to them tell you what the impact of what you did was on them. And then you ask them to forgive you. Uh, there's a completion in that process that I think makes a complete amend. Uh, and it is a deeper process than apologizing or saying we're sorry. And it escapes that process where it's about us. And um, I think there's really something holy about that. I had, uh, I've lived in the same town all my life. And uh, the old timers used to say, I'd, I'd, I'd say to them, who do I put on the list? I said, put anybody on the list that if you walk down the street and you saw them, that you'd cross the street rather than continue and bump into them and say hello. And uh, that was always a pretty good, you know, sort of measure. But when you live in the same village with the same families, with the same, you know, cleaning, cleaning things up is a really effective and wonderful thing to do. And the other thing that making amends does for us is we are so much less likely to repeat behaviors. And that's what the amends, the real implication of amends is that we're going to stop the behavior. It is not just an apology. So when I had to go back to my, you know, you go start apologizing for children for rageful behavior, for slapping one of your kids. Well, you may, you know, I'm sorry, I got, you know, too upset, I didn't do this. But the 17th time you do that, there is no conversation. There just flat ass is no, nothing you can say that matters at all other than just stop. And, uh, you know, and that's what happens to us, I think, in the program. And for me, it happened at seven or eight years of sobriety. You got me well enough to a point that I could no longer hide the things in my life that were not working. You got me well honest enough with myself that I couldn't hide it. And I had a second surrender. And in that surrender, I was willing to turn myself in and to try to be, I think, what my sponsor wanted me to be, I think what God wanted me to be, and I think what the program wanted me to be. I had some great examples. And I, w- I was just too afraid and too covered up. So eight and nine uh, are the completion of the work. You know, different people who kind of segment the program talk about uh, steps 10, 11, and 12 being the uh, how we, you know, put the principles into action and in the maintenance steps and how we put the principles into action ongoingly as we go on. But four to nine are the block of the work after we have surrendered and in the process of how we found God. I love what Polly said. I, I just... Uh, that was pretty new for me to listen to the way she talked about the fact that, you know, three doesn't happen when you take step three. And almost all of us say, you know, gee, I took that step. Why isn't it working? Well, it, because it happens as a, you know, as part of the process of four through nine. And because it's of God, because it's spiritual, we don't own it, you know. So ongoingly, people, I just did another fourth and fifth. I just retired and I've had, it's been a much bigger, it's been a much bigger and more difficult process of adjusting to than I expected it to be. You know, I'm no longer a player 
you know, so you're just kind of a hole in the donut. You know, there are so, all sorts of things. My business partner, who's older than I am, is still active 100% with my son, and they are kind of the two guys running the company. And they're not telling me stuff that I think I'm entitled to know. And uh, they seem happier than when I was there. Uh, <laughs> the company is doing better than when I was there, which I think is accidental. I, I mean, I think it's luck. I, I, I do. Uh, so, and over a period of time, I have gotten myself into uh, one other area I want to say because I was blessed with. Uh, making a lot of money. I've lent a lot of money in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've given a lot of money. Uh, and uh, when you do that, you end up, uh, and in almost all cases, you end up not getting that money back, whether it's a loan or a gift. Uh, the best advice I ever got is don't lend money, give money. Okay, so I'll report that one to you. The times where I have been screwed in six figures, you know, I have never found an instance where I found out that my ego was not involved, that greed was not involved, and I put myself in a position to be hurt by the way I am, by the way I interact with money. And I could tell you a wonderful story about how the person took advantage of me, and I know, I know of no instance that I was taken, and I was taken advantage of in four or five different situations, and I know of no instance that my defective character didn't allow me to be taken advantage of that my wife would never have gotten into that fix. My, our son would never have made the decisions. But I, I made those decisions. And uh, you have to, my son said, you have to figure, you have to figure out the difference between investing and plunging, that there is, a, there is act, actually. <laughs> and in some, in some cases, you might even find out that, you know, where I quit gambling, you know, in my living room when I was sober eight years, is that gambling had entered, re-entered my life under the guise of aggressive investing. And uh, it is. And I think we will always tend to leak uh, in the spots where we're weak. And that's the other thing that I want to say. If you are, an, if you have a person who has an anger issue, I think there's a chance you're going to, that that's a, something you're going to have to be conscious of all your life. Okay? If you are a person who's a money spender, who all you want is more, that's something you're going to have to be conscious of all your life, okay? So I have a tendency, uh, if you have a tendency to blame other people, and, 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 you know, I don't look like a victim, but, I mean, all my life I've had, you know, I've known what's wrong with other people. God gave me the gift of clarity. And, uh, <laughs> and it's those sorts of things that you do damage to. I mean, I have, I have a business partner who uh, I just completed a fourth step with, on and I'm I, I'm going to go make amends to him, but it's an ongoing. It's like making amends to a wife that you. We've been business partners for 43 years. He is 50 years sober, and in, in about four weeks, he's going to be 50 years sober. And we have shared a lot of life together, and our interactions are not going to change. So I'm going to go make amends to him, knowing that the difficulty, knowing that the things that he he has done to irritate me over a period of time. He's still going to do. Okay? But that doesn't change the fact that I have overly blamed him and taken advantage of situations that I need to clean up. And the tendency is, is why should I go make amends for him if he's going to continue that behavior? Well, he's a human being. What about your behavior? 
How long did you, you know, act in that way? So as time goes on, I think the process, I think when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, we have dragged our magnetic perfect soul through the junkyard of life and have showed up here with a six-foot ball of crap. Okay? And I think the steps are a process of removal. I think the process of finding God is the process of removal, not addition. And piece by piece, we pry off things that are in the way of our experience of our higher power and things that are in the way to the fullness of our lives. When Mari talked about difficulty with relationships, those things are blocking us from the fullness of life. It's why we have jobs, not careers. It's why we have affairs and not marriages. It's why we have, you know, it's why we can't have 401Ks. It's why we can't have car insurance. I mean, it is a sort of thing. I mean, it isn't that we're missing anything. It is that we are blocking and the process of removal. But most of us do not. Those those are our gifts. And it takes some time to find out that they aren't gifts. They're just dog turds wrapped in gold tinfoil. They are, it is an illusion. They are not treasures. You know, they are the things that are interfering with the fullness of life. And to have that experience, uh, to have that energy restored, and mostly... The, the, the last thing that I want to say is mostly do and have your integrity restored. You know, when you listen to, you know, Polly and Mari and Clancy and the different people, they're not the people that they were. We're not the people that we were when we walked in the front door. Our souls have been returned to us. Okay. And, and our essence. And in that, there's a meaning of life. If someone would have grabbed me, you know, the last year of my drinking and said, what is it all about? I would have had absolutely no idea, okay? After I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, if they grabbed me and said, what's it all about? Even in my first year, I could not have told them, but I would have known. There was something that happened to me from the moment I took my seat in Alcoholics Anonymous that that connected me to the man I want to be and how I want to live my life. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.